When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Forever. Dog. Comic book commentary listeners, we have another flashback episode for you today. Back from the old Nerdist Writers panel from 2013. This was another conversation with our friend Len Wein, um, the late and wonderful and dearly missed Len Wein, who created Wolverine, Swamp Thing, who wrote every Marvel and DC character over his 50 years of writing comic books. Um, We're joined in this panel by Adam Beechan, comic book writer, animation writer, uh, lovely guy, basketball fan. Uh, You know him from having written Batman Beyond and Robin, uh, as well as Wonder Park and uh, a slew of other animated series. And uh, my pal Heath Corson, who uh, has written comics such as Bizarro for DC a couple of years ago, a really fun miniseries that you folks should check out if you haven't. Uh, He worked on the Scream TV show um, and is just a huge comics fan. He's, He's the enthusiast among our group. Um, in this episode, we thought it would be fun to dig deep on one specific character and really take them apart. Uh, so we decided, and this was released on Independence Day of 2013, and we decided to talk about Captain America and uh, what makes that character tick, what makes that character appealing. It was an interesting time to talk about Captain America because we were not quite in the heart of the Marvel Cinematic Universe yet. Uh, I think the first Cap movie had been released, but maybe that was it, if that. Um, I probably should have checked before I started talking, but I didn't. Um, Anyway, so it's a really fun conversation, a deep dive on Captain America, a character that Len has written. um, And I don't think any of the rest of us have, Um, but we were all big readers of him. We loved Mark Wade's run. We loved Ed Brubaker's run. Uh, So we talk about all that stuff and we go deep on Captain America and Bucky. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as we did. Comic books, comic time. Writers and artists are on the line. They make a splash as a comic's red and take us on a trip behind the spread. Watch out for comic book commentary. Spinning a winning inside. Fix how they got a hot idea. Narrative, character, visual tricks, and onomatopoeia. Uh huh. It's comic book commentary. I don't know what to do with myself if I'm not writing. <laughs> The last time we met, by the way, Dollar Bill had not come out. It was fantastic. Thank you very much. Really fun. Thank you. Really fun. I had a good time with that. I could tell. And Steve Reed did, was the perfect artist. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, we were talking about this earlier. You've been... Listen, we've started. You guys. Have we started? Oh, apparently we've, uh, we started. Hello, world. You've been, you've been really lucky in artists, uh, especially recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were talking about Jay Lee's stuff on the uh, Ozymandias 
short. Tell, tell me again what you were saying earlier about that, because I, well, I think it's absolutely I, it, accurate. It is the most astonishing art job. Everybody I see who talks about it says, it's the best art of the six books. And I agree. Mm-hmm. And yet, when I sat down and studied it recently, I realized he doesn't really draw anything. Everybody's in the shadow. They've got their backs to you. He shoots them from, you know, mid torso. So all you get is like their chest. Mm-hmm. There's very little background, although you get the impression there's all of this stuff going on. Yeah. And it's, it's the best <laughs> sleight of hand job I've ever seen. Oh, Ooh, sleight of hand job. <laughs> I don't care. To... It's my new <laughs> band name. Yeah. Dibs on the band name. Fun. Yeah. I think um, but, but I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I was checking it out downstairs. We're at Meltdown. By the way, hi, yes. it's me, Ben. Um, hi, Ben. It's me, Len. <laughs> Heath and Adam. Okay, good. Okay. Uh, I was checking it out downstairs, the uh, Osmondias thing, and it's these kind of bold geometric shapes, yes, right? Which are the, like the chest that you talk about, mm-hmm. uh, and then the way he lays out the frames. You were saying in circles, so it feels like you should read it down the page. Yes, it's I, so I, interesting. I, I realized about the third issue that in the, a perfect world would be almost a film strip, and you just kind of keep yeah. reading down as oh, neat. to read across to the next page, which is what our language teaches us to do. And when you scripted these specifically, uh, how did you script them? Did you do a full script? You know, how much did you suggest what, uh, well, it, what I, the look of it should be? I never where. where I can't. I should not say never. When I write comedy, I write a full script because mm-hmm. timing is critical. You can't trust right. anybody but yourself to make sure you pace it <laughs> to get to your punchlines when you want your punchlines to hit. But when I write anything else, I try where I can to write it what came to be called Marvel style, mm-hmm. which is I write it almost as a short story. I write page panel breakdowns. I break it down. It's not loose. It's not like Stan used to tell Jack, uh, Dr. Doom, this one, go. And Jack would go and plot the whole damn story. <laughs> I, I break it down page by page with slash marks every sentence or two to indicate where I believe panel break should be and how it should go. There's rough dialogue throughout it so that the artist has an idea mm-hmm. of what the character's body language and expression should right. be. And... Then I dialogue properly off of the finished pencils. Interesting. Usually, because that way I've covered myself. Uh, on the chance that the artist has not drawn what I wanted, and that <laughs> does happen, uh, I can cover it in dialogue or copy. Uh-huh. I mean, when I used to write full scripts for the superhero books early on, you know, the art description would be Superman leaps from the roof. Right. And I would put a caption in as Superman leaps from the roof, <laughs> with Superman thinking, I think I'll leap from this roof. <laughs> Just to make sure, because God forbid the artist gives me a close-up of Superman's nose. What right. do I do? How do you know he's leaping from a roof? <laughs> but when I see the art, I can talk about other things in the dialogue. Mm-hmm. And he, if the story's been told by the artist, I can tell a story on top of the art that's that's an extra dimension mm-hmm. that you don't necessarily get the other way. That's very interesting to me. And and I guess I come at it from, you know, again, I've written so little in comics books, but have done a lot in television and also on in on our thrilling adventure stage where mm-hmm. I'm such a control freak that I'd be afraid to give up that kind of control to the artist. You know, it just in fear that the story I want told isn't the same as the story he wants told. There are examples of that. My favorite of all time, there's an issue of Thor by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby that goes back to the 60s when I was still a reader. I wasn't even in the business yet. And I think it's called Who is Replicus was the name of the story. <laughs> I've, I've remembered that. And I realized even as a 
kid who wanted to be in the business that if you look at that issue and you look at the art Jack Kirby has drawn, always spectacular, mm -hmm. and you look at the script Stan Lee dialogued with, always spectacular, they were two different stories entirely. <laughs> the artwork had nothing whatsoever to do with the dialogue of the story, except it did, but it didn't. Right. You know, and I realized they at that point, interest, yeah, this is one of those cases where the two of them had two entirely different stories they wanted to tell, yeah. and they were determined to tell that story no matter what the and other I feel, guy thought. I feel like now, if you're looking to tell a story in this way, that's even more likely to happen. I'm Where reading the Marvel book now, you guys. Oh, yeah. I'm, 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 <laughs> spoiler. I, I got past me, so I stopped reading. That's, not, that's actually not true. I, I started when it got to you. I, yeah. I, I, I was more fascinated by all the stuff that followed me, so I actually enjoyed the book quite a bit. But... You have to, it's a collaborative medium mm -hmm. and you have to trust as best you can your artist to tell the story you want to tell. That's mm -hmm. what he's been hired to do, basically. Uh, as you work with people on a protracted basis, you get to know their strengths sure. and their weaknesses. You know what they'll do. Uh, if one of my favorite personal stories was I did a backup demon strip for detective comics when paul levitz was editing it way back when and i got michael golden as my artist and mm -hmm. i'm going oh my god i've got michael Golden." heard of him <laughs> and I, I michael drew the first issue and i dialogued it and i thought it was one of the best scripts i did in ages beautiful flowery captions you know, it's the demon you can yeah, do all right. kinds of interesting stuff it's great dialogue i was really thrilled and then michael golden that's now a verb on us and disappeared we couldn't find them oh, and he the second issue is getting ready to you know, supposed to be coming out in x weeks and there's no artwork because there's no artist he's vanished off the face of the earth so we kind of sit around and go what are we going to do and paul calls me up and goes uh i can get steve ditko to finish the story and i said yes we can <laughs> please do and steve quickly penciled the next issue. Yeah, the plot was sitting around waiting. It was originally for Michael. And I dialogued it. And I said, this is terrible. What am I doing wrong? I, I don't really like this script. I don't think it's anywhere near as good as the script I had done the previous issue for, for Michael. So I called Marv Wolfman, you know, my oldest friend. And I said, read these. Tell me what I'm doing wrong. And he read the two of them and came back to me and said, you didn't do anything wrong. I said, then why has this script got so much less captions and whatever, you know, the Ditko story than, than the Golden story? He said, oh, it's simple. I said, what? He said, Ditko told your story. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He says, go back and look at the Golden Drop. It's beautiful, but there's no storytelling. There's a lot of very pretty pictures. Absolutely. The entire story you had to tell in the dialogue and then all the captions. Awesome. Ditko, if you put no dialogue in, you know exactly what your story was. That's so interesting. And I... Took that as a tremendous lesson. Yeah, and there's a absolutely. place. There's a place for both kinds of art. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Um, because both men are masters. You know. Sure. Um, so it, you know, Jay Lee has his own way of telling a story, mm -hmm. uh, just the same way that Michael does, or the same way that Mr. Ditko does. Well, I was going to ask you, Adam, uh, to tell us about some of these collaborations with artists. I've been really fortunate uh, mm -hmm. in that generally the artist and I have seen pretty much eye to eye as far as the characters go, as far as the stories go that we're working on. Um, I've worked with a lot of artists that are relatively new in the business. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and I'm, I still consider myself relatively new in the business. So I write very full scripts, very mm -hmm. complete scripts. And I just tell the artist, no matter who it is, I say, if you've got a better way to, to tell this scene, to do this page, mm -hmm. I, I'm totally okay with that. Let's talk about it. 
and and see if we can you know so there's no surprises on either end right uh because sometimes you'll get a page back that you don't recognize as being something that you wrote mm-hmm. um which is fine but it's best not to have that surprise mm-hmm. so uh well there's uh, also such a huge gap usually in time right there between is. the time that you hand over a absolutely. script and the time you start getting sketches in absolutely i uh, mean on on batman beyond i've been working with norm breifogel and there's no more of a pro than norm yeah. and he can take a look at a script and say oh okay, I see what he's going for and automatically tell it better than I've written it down. <laughs> so amazing. I trust Norm completely That's with fantastic. the script. He doesn't, I don't need to have him call me up and say, Hey, do you mind if I do this? Do you mind if I tweak this? Because I know it's going to be better. Right. Um, but that's a, that's a pretty rare collaboration to work with somebody like Norm, who's been drawing for 30 years and knows the ins and outs of every possible way to draw a comic book page. <laughs> right. Uh, so I trust him completely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's interesting how this thing works. Uh, Jay in particular, uh, is very slow, glacially <laughs> slow, but but does wonderful work. So to get the book in on time, he was doing very rough layouts for mm-hmm. me, very rough layouts, and I was dialoguing from that. And then he would go with a pencil, uh, and his pencils are so tight that we never even inked the book. We had it shot oh, from wow. the pencils oh, wow. into black, and then that's ink. interesting. Yeah, that's how it all came out. And his wife June Chung is the colorist, so it all it all worked wonderfully, but. On the very first issue, I wrote a particular sequence, and the layouts were exactly what I asked for. Exactly, mm-hmm. if I they couldn't have been better if they had come out of my own head. They were exactly <laughs> what I wanted. And then the finished artwork came in, and bore no resemblance to what he had done in the layouts. And in fact, for the rest of the six issues, that was true. His layouts were always exactly what I asked for, and his finished art was entirely different, mm-hmm. and yet somehow still matched the dialogue I had written. Although poor John Workman, who did a wonderful job lettering the book, spent a lot of time having to rearrange balloon placements oh, since he had well, redesigned the pages. Did they just scrap it? What happened? He fell yeah, he out of love a, with his well, stuff? What happened? I, what happened? No, yeah. it was just his, his way of working, which was singular and god bless him for it but what happened is on that first issue when those last four pages came in so radically different from what i wanted i wrote him a letter and said look i understand the artistic temperament and and, and the artistic approach but your layouts were so perfectly exactly what i asked for and your finished art bore so little resemblance I really need you. I know we're tight for time and yada, 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 but, but you've really got to redraw those last four pages to match your layouts. And the next day I got this email from him about three pages, very protracted email. And it was one of the most articulate, intelligent things I've ever read. He said, I understand what you wanted, but I made the changes because, and he elaborated at length how he saw the characters, how he believed I saw the characters at the heart of them. And he was right. And wow. He was. That's amazing. And I went back to him and I said, you, you probably should have this frame because it doesn't happen often. But I apologize. You're right and I'm wrong. Wow. And... I never let it bother me again for the rest of the series. That's a right. That's a good collaboration. Yeah, yeah it really, really is. is. Uh, because the artist has their own take on the characters, their own take on the story, and wants to bring that to your script. Mm-hmm. And again, like I said, if if an artist has different ideas about how to get something done, I'm I'm all for it. Let's just talk about it first, so that there's no confusion when the art comes in. Yes. and the script needs to be you know added to the to the art because mm-hmm. uh, there's not enough time yeah, to have that discussion ever. then. 
Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I was just going to say, how often do you see an artist bring in a big concept that you had no idea was coming? Like what Jay did with the concentric circles and, and the really like geometric placement. Um, it seems like a big idea to lay on there. Is that something that comes from you? Is that something that no. they put on? I mean, and you it's go, a big style it's decision. A big style yeah, that was, decision. A, that was yeah. his style decision. The, the idea of, of, of thinking the entire series through in circles, I guess to match uh-huh. the O in Ozymandias or something. I don't know what prompted him. But it was his idea that mm-hmm. to take that up visual approach, and I can't complain. I mean, as I no, said, it's a cool, I, it, cool it looks call. great. It's a really neat idea. The reviews all love Jay's work, sure. as, and rightly so. Uh, so I, I kind of went, all right, well, this is going to be an interesting problem. And, and really, the company should have paid John Workman double rate because he had to do double work. <laughs> I mean, he would lay out, you know, he, he'd lay out the balloons and everything to match. What I asked for, because I, right. I would do the balloon placement off the layouts, mm-hmm. and then the art would come in, and if you put a balloon there, it's right in the middle of his face, so we have to move it, and he'd wow. have to rearrange the layout, and, and thank God it was John Workman, who's an old hand and an old friend of mine, and uh, he did an extraordinary job. He managed to completely make everything mesh, and you never knew, and always carried your eye where the eye needed to go to get to that next balloon. And mm-hmm. That's something, and maybe this is kind of a silly question, because I'm new to all of this, but it's something that is the language of comics that doesn't exist anywhere else. Right. <laughs> yes. Balloon placement, right? Yes. Completely. And I'm only seeing it for the first time in our thrilling adventure graphic novel where, like, how much that comes into play and, you know, seeing the people who are really good at it and how, you know, they can work that into, again, the language of the comic. Is it something you guys have to think about when writing dialogue, whether it's, you know, in the initial script or later on? Well, I certainly do. I mean, since I predominantly dialogue off of the artwork, I will sometimes look at the page. Uh, Again, there's always rough dialogue from the plot, but I will look at the page and sometimes I'll take a blue pencil and I'll sketch in where the balloons are to go to balance out the art Mm -hmm. because the artist is leaving space for those balloons to be there or or captions or whatever for the lettering. And I will sometimes write an extra balloons worth of dialogue here and there because there needs to be a balloon there. Mm -hmm. Needs to balance out the picture properly. Interesting. And also, you can play visual games. Mm-hmm. You can balloon in such a way that you can create the things you want heard as you want them heard. Uh, you put a balloon in the upper left hand corner and the punchline to the balloon in the lower right hand <laughs> corner, and you've put that ellipses in there, that pause mm-hmm. as the eye takes that split second to move from the first balloon to the second. That's how it gets read. It gets read as I envisioned it being read. Uh, so it's an art, and it's a dying art. I, I <laughs> When I started doing Legacies, the, you know, my previous mm-hmm. project before Ozymandias for DC, I my editor was Mike Carlin, who's an old hand by these standards. And I said to him, I want to balloon it. He says, well, I, I don't actually let anybody balloon it. Uh, I been doing this longer than most anybody and nobody does it as well as I do. <laughs> and I said, well, just for the hell of it, let's, let's, let me try the first issue. If you don't like my balloon placement, mm-hmm. uh, do as you will. And I turned in the first issue and he 
called me back and said, I apologize. It's just fine. <laughs> You're welcome. And, and I said, well, thank you. I, I kind of figured it would be. I've been doing this for years. He said, he said, well, you know, Roger Stern taught me how to balloon. And Roger was one of the great ballooners. And I looked at him and I <laughs> smiled. We'll yeah. I, I looked at him and I smiled and I said, well, well, who do you think taught Roger how to balloon? <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, That's balloon, what, balloon placement is one of those things that if it's really good, you never notice it. That's and, right. And if it's bad, you, you really notice it. it. Yeah, but it's right. one of those elements that I think readers don't realize how much thought goes into, mm-hmm. but there mm-hmm. really is. Yeah, no, I certainly right. didn't realize till I had to do yeah. it. Well, that's yeah. not that I'm ask... placing them, but you know, having to be aware. Be aware of, of it. Sure. I was going to ask you because you guys are very. I mean, you use a lot of words. You're very mm-hmm. verbose in <laughs> thrilling adventure. Blah, and that's part blah, of blah, that's right. part of what's <laughs> fun about it. So, how did that impact the way you guys tell your story to lay on the art or lay on the words or the dialogue or what? What are you guys finding? There, there's there was definitely a learning curve, yeah. um, but it's, I, I got great advice. One from Len who, and I, I think I've said this before, who described the uh, comic page or the comic panel as a film strip and you're picking out the best cell to tell the story. Mm-hmm. And so it was fi- figuring out the best cell to tell the story in each piece of it. And then uh, a piece of advice from Ed Brubaker who said, you know, you're trying to tell the most story in the fewest amount of words. Right. Uh, and, and he was absolutely right. It's, you know, how do we convey banter in four lines those lines have to be so loaded yes. you know there's no there's no filler in a comic book no, right you average, and you can tell when there is you average five or six panels a page with mm-hmm. about on average 35 words a panel mm-hmm. that's what you're bound to unless you're brian michael bendis and like you do <laughs> 17 <laughs> balloons in a row from the same character or george right? perez and doing 30 right yeah well panels george does it you know i, I love george absolutely i have worked together many times absolutely. over the years <laughs> but i tell you when i'm at a convention signing books and signing covers i hate george he never leaves any empty no. space to sign on i have to <laughs> sign over the art and i hate covering the art i always look for this okay but that space here and i'll right. use where i sign my name well, it's interesting because I remember when I, I gave my dad a comic book for the very for what I thought was the very first time. And I was like, oh, dad, you got to read this. This is awesome. And I'm nine years old. And he gives it back to me. And he's like, I don't know how to read this. And yeah. I was like, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. And he couldn't figure out how to read through yes. a comic book. And that's when I realized, oh, I kind of know a secret language. Yeah. Like, I know something that not everybody knows. That's a really interesting point. And, uh-huh. and so now we're talking like, because, you know, we're all familiar with it. But, you know, you give it to people and some people go, I don't know how mm-hmm. to, what the what the way to do this is. Absolutely. It is. It is a teaching curve. Julius Schwartz, you know, my mentor and one of the arguably the best editor in the history of the business. Uh, and certainly, certainly, even if he's not the best, although I believe he was, uh, the most important editor in the history of the business. I mean, without Julie, there would not be a Silver Age of Comics. There would not be a Marvel Comics group. That's right. Yeah. Julie is, nor would there be comics fandom. Because Julie and his his old friend, Mort Weinger, basically helped found science fiction fandom. Hmm. And when comic fandom slowly started to grow in the early 60s. Julie was one of the people who supported it and, and hmm. augmented it. He print addresses and things in his other columns so we could all get in touch with one another. Uh, but at any rate, he was telling me one day when we were working together that he had been sitting on the subway on his way to the office one day and looked across uh, to see a young man about 
18, 19 years old, sitting across from him reading one of his books. <laughs> and he thought it was the coolest thing in the world <laughs> until he looked at the kid and realized it was two pages. You know, the kid had the book open in front of him and he was reading across the two pages. He wasn't sure. reading page one yeah. and then page two. He read them as if they were one entity. And he realized the kid had no clue how to really right. read the book. Right. Yeah. And the Israeli comics are even harder. Oh, you got to start <laughs> on the back, back page. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> even harder to read. Superman's ass um, is reversed. That's, that's, that's right. It doesn't work at all. This seems like a good place uh, to bring up a question that you, or a topic that you had suggested, Adam, which is the role of the editor. Okay. Yeah. I, well, I have a, a question going back to Julie Schwartz. Okay. Yeah. How was, was, was Julie a writer as well as an editor? I know he didn't write for comics, <laughs> but did he write on his own? Did he write his own stuff? No. Uh, but Julie never believed himself to be a writer. But in the early days, he was a, much of the writing was his. I, when I was still a fan, I would go up to the office and visit him and other folks that I, I started to come to know. Uh, I would watch him editing a Gardner Fox script on Flash or Green Lantern and watch him basically cross out all of the dialogue and replace it. And yet he would argue, I'm just editing, I'm not writing. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, if when you're done, the dialogue bears no resemblance to what was there originally. <laughs> you're writing. But he never believed that. He always thought he was simply an editor. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I think that editing is an art Absolutely. just as much as any other Absolutely. part of writing the comic or doing the comic. Where do comics editors come from traditionally or generally speaking? They're usually found under mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm on here or on <laughs> or possibly <laughs> eating. Uh, <laughs> comic editor. Well, boy, this is <laughs> I'm, I'm in my you fail right up. Here. You fail up into editor. Yes, yeah. partly. But that's well, not entirely that's that historically was, true. That's not historic. <laughs> I was going to say that was <laughs> historically true for the first 30, 40 years of this industry. Right. Julie didn't fail. Edi- editors right. came from editing. Most of the early editors edited science fiction magazines, edited prose pulps. They came from a career of doing a certain kind of editing, at least. Some of them had no artistic skills per se, so they simply learned to develop them. Mm-hmm. But they had... The ability not only to edit, but to teach. Uh, I mean, mm, I, I worked. That's interesting. I, I was, I am arguably the luckiest guy in the history of the business because I came in at the end of a generation of editors, many of whom I worked with, mm-hmm. and the beginning of the next generation of editors, including Dick Giordano and Joe Orlando and Joe Kubert and guys like that who had not edited previously, but all of whom were artists. So they brought an yeah. artist's eye to the work as well as an artist's ear for the dialogue. Mm-hmm. But I, and I have always said, I learned from every editor I ever worked with, even in the case of a couple of them, it was do nothing. This man tells you, <laughs> which is just as important Absolutely. as, as yeah. you know, do everything. This man tells you, right? like, you know, when working with Julie, at some point, it seems like 
uh, editors went from being people who had been trained to be editors to people who learned on the job yeah. to be editors. When did that change happen? Why did it happen? Probably about 25 years ago. I mean, certainly after, I think when my generation of editors started to move on to other places, most, most of us to California from New York, right. but the people who started coming in after that were in some cases fans, but that's okay. We were fans. Mm -hmm. We were the first generation of fans who became professionals. In some cases, they just got the job. They answered an ad, you know, editor needed. Uh, I've always said, when I go to conventions, I ask a question. I said, what is the number one job of a Hollywood executive? <laughs> and and I often I I'm rare, laughing already. <laughs> I rarely get the right answer. Anybody here? Got a shot? I'm gonna say to say no. <laughs> that's usually what I hear. That's, I, that's I would not agree it. with that. That's not it either. Notes. Nope. The number one job of a Hollywood executive is to keep his job. <laughs> okay. Okay. Sure. And they do that by doing as little as possible or everything they believe will allow them plausible deniability. You hire people who have been hired by others before you so that when the project fails, if the project fails more fail than succeed, you can go to your boss and go, well, how did I know this would fail? This guy did that movie there and it was right. a huge hit. That's right. That's what we call the sleight of hand job. Yeah. There you yes. go. Unfortunately, the case of, of many editors in the business, they're not all, there are still some very talented Absolutely. men and women, uh, but a lot of them simply have the job and they're big concern is to keep the job. And so you get a lot less seat of the pants creativity, which we used to have a lot of. Mm -hmm. I always called Marvel and I was working there in the early seventies, the wild west. We would wing it. We would make stuff up on the go. I mean, I've never forgotten the day I was editor in chief where the money guys came down from upstairs and said, we're not making enough money. We need four new books on the line. <laughs> and so I went out to lunch with my staff. We, figured out four books. We figured out four creative staffs. We called them up, assigned them. Two months later, the books were on the stand. So were there any editors right. at that time that weren't writers? No, I no. don't think so. Yeah. yeah. yeah I mean, I, is this, and, and again, I say this having only worked with one editor uh, at Marvel now who is terrific and obviously took a chance on us, but, you know, is it because these things are parts of they're just cogs in this machine, this entertainment machine that, you know, they can't afford to take a chance that they are more like film or TV execs. I think anybody can afford to take a chance. Mm -hmm. I did all the time. Even mm -hmm. when I went to DC, which is certainly older and more, mm -hmm. I won't say regimented because I did a lot of weird crap <laughs> <laughs> and got away with the vast yeah. majority of it. And, and occasionally I, I would be sitting in my office and the lawyers would come down and go, you know, the thing that don't ever do that again. <laughs> And I, of course, would go, absolutely, I'm so sorry, I didn't realize it was a problem. Knowing full well when I did it, it would be a problem. Wait, what did you get dinged but for I, by the kind of, lawyers? I, I did a takeoff on the Three Stooges and the Plastic Man story <laughs> once. All kinds of, I, I kept playing with the Batman logo. We did some of the great, Ed Hannigan was a wonderful designer. Amazing. And had an innate sense, before the days of computers, where the computer could move your logo mm -hmm. and tilt it at any angle it wanted to, where he did it by eye. 
Wow. And he did these amazing Batman covers where we kept playing with the logo. There was a, a Poison Ivy cover I always loved where the entire cover is covered in ivy and you see maybe 10% of Batman struggling to make his way out of the, the tangle yeah. and most of the logo is covered and they're going, you can't cover the logo? It breaks our <laughs> trademark. And we're thinking, oh, I'm so sorry. I'll not do that again. <laughs> I did something else the next one. Right. You know, I would do this all the time and they would come down and yell. But my goal was never to repeat the same thing because why do you want to? Right. Make it new was, mistakes. Right. Oh, yeah. I, I used to, when I would hire people, I always said, I don't care if you make a mistake every day you work for me. I ask only one thing. Don't make the same one twice. <laughs> yeah. And that seems fair. Yeah. But they weren't mistakes. I knew full well I was going to get my ass kicked. But I figured, what the hell? All they're going to do is yell at me and say, don't do that again. And I never intended to, so I was fine. <laughs> I've never spent a day or a week shadowing an editor. And I think it would probably be very useful to me as a writer to see what an editor does on a day-to-day, moment-to-moment basis. Mm-hmm. Because my sense is that uh, while the editor has some creative input and has may have notes from time to time on, on a story that you've written, a lot of the job is traffic control. Yeah, I was just going to say. Now it is. Yes, that's yeah. true. Mm-hmm. It wasn't always. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was part of the job, certainly, because you had to be responsible for what you're spending the company's money on. Absolutely. Uh, Paul Levitz, when he was the editorial coordinator of the company, you know, would come into me quarterly because we'd go through inventory. And I was editing several anthology books, which meant I had a bunch of stuff in inventory. And he was one of these, you know, you write it down, you keep records. And I kept them all in my head. Mm-hmm. I had nothing on paper. And every Half every six months he come in. I mean, he's one of my oldest, dearest friends. So this is more business than was personal to get me. It's like to prove to me I'm wrong. I should be doing it his way. <laughs> and every quarter I would know exactly where every page of my office was. And my assistant who would kept those kinds of records was like, "Well, this this job is so and so." I said, "No, it's not. It's right there on the shelf." Or, or no, it's at the letter. Or it's, uh, you know, he didn't know. I was more up on everything than he was, and he was supposed to be doing sure. trafficking in my office. And Paul will go on going, damn it. It's <laughs> on every quarter. But even even beyond that, just making sure that the art gets done on time, gets to the inker on well, time, that yeah. the lettering gets in on time. And it's a, a matter of making sure that the schedule, Absolutely. when I say traffic cop, I mean, I'm thinking mostly in terms of scheduling. Yes. Mm-hmm. That everything gets done. Yeah. I, I There was one artist I worked with where I would threaten to publish eight pages of blank paper every month that said, so-and-so fucked up. That's why there's no art on this page. <laughs> Nothing here. Uh, there are the snowstorm issue. I bet you yeah. that would sell. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Sean McManus, who's a, a, a fine artist and does sure. a lot of work, basically got his career started by being the guy who came in to replace the actual Green Arrow artist, I was, who was the backup feature and detective while I was editing the book, because he could get the entire job drawn hmm. in a week. And I only had a week when the other guy who'd had a month and change. Sure. Didn't come through. And so Sean kept drawing green arrow stories and developed a career. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. It, it shares that with television in that it's coming out. Like it's, yeah. it is happening. It's a like moving train. It's a moving train. You're yeah. publishing something. So you need to keep it all working and moving forward at the mm-hmm. same time. Mm-hmm. There's no dreaded deadline doom anymore. Uh, right. <laughs> that's right. So that's kind of interesting and in that you are on the, those sort of uh, quick moving deadlines. And I think that because that pressure is there and things have to come out, sometimes I think the, the creative communication between the creative team on the book and the editor uh, maybe gets moved a little bit to the side because that book has to get out. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, um, 
that I think is, is sometimes a little unfortunate because the more eyes that are on a project, mm-hmm. the better it can be made. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At its best, and it comes back, at its best, it comes back to this idea of collaboration, right? Yes. right? As much as the writer and the artist are collaborating, the editor at its best should be a part of that conversation. Everybody and was, team. I mean, in yeah. the old, when I started I out, editors were that. I would plot my stories with them. Mm-hmm. I would come in to oh, see wow. Julie every week. Really? Oh, yeah. And we'd sit in the room together and play. it's like the room talking about yeah. my, my doing a thrilling adventure for you, <laughs> uh, is being in the room together mm-hmm. and, and working, yeah, and throwing, idea, throwing ideas back and forth. Yeah. And, and we did this every month on two or three different books. I did a lot of stuff for Julie. And it was more fun than human beings should be allowed to have. Mm-hmm. The closest I've had to that experience is that if I will start on a book, I'll get asked for uh, a year synopsis mm-hmm. of what I intend to yeah. do, which characters are going to appear in which issue, what the the arc is, and so on. A year, yeah, wow. or six months, or yeah. but generally it's been a year. And uh, um, sometimes I haven't lasted on a book that long. <laughs> <laughs> Not your fault. Get past the first two weeks, you're right. happy. Yeah. Welcome, but but that's usually where the conversation ends, and then it's pretty much off to the races get those scripts in hmm. and, and are you sending them directly to the artist no to the editor oh, okay and then yeah. he'll like you say traffic call yep yeah or i'll get a, a note back mm-hmm. and forth but generally not too many I, I can't think of too many notes that i've gotten from editors the ones that i've gotten have been very good by mm-hmm. and large but uh but hardly you know i don't get pages and pages and pages of notes like i would on a tv script right mm-hmm. well right. this uh, and i was going to draw I, I wonder if that's because of pace I mean, is that because it needs to go? It needs Maybe. to get to the artist and the artist needs to go? But or? in TV, I mean, there's still we still have that pace and yeah, it's, it's that's right. moved up even. But that's right. We still get those notes. Uh-huh. Yeah. But uh, it and doesn't I, stop anybody from actually exactly. making the notes. Right. 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 Uh, sure. Until you have a showrunner who can say, sorry, we yeah. got to go. We yeah. got to yeah. shoot. That's um, it. And I think all of you guys can speak to this. Uh, but tell me about, you know, these collaborations that you've had with yeah, you know, I think it's interesting to draw that analogy of the executive and the editor, because I think at its best, again, it can be a great partnership. Uh, have you had this in TV? Have you had this in sure. film where you've worked with uh, yeah. an executive who actually absolutely gets it? Yes, absolutely. I found that there's a lot of really smart people out there, and then they some of them become executives, and you yes. know, accidentally, they, accidentally. They, they stumble into the job. And, and they're smart people, and they have smart things to say. And then there's ones who sometimes don't get something, and that's mm-hmm. more the cliche. Uh, I was on the phone for 45 minutes with a pair of executives who were supposedly giving me notes, but basically just wanted to 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 chat and and brainstorm, <laughs> well, get lonely, and waltz me around the dance floor for 50 minutes. And afterwards, sure. I hung. No. Up and I, I called my agent. I go, I don't understand what just happened. Like, <laughs> is there a note there? Was there an opinion? It was literally like a, a show about one thing, and they're like, "What if he's a lawyer?" And I was like, "The guy's a bounty hunter." Like, <laughs> what, what are we talking? I about? I love that show. By yeah, the, oh, the yeah. lawyer bounty hunter. Show? Yeah, that's a great show. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's good. We're going now entering our 18th season. <laughs> um, <laughs> in my brain. But what about the good experience that you've had? I think when people. I think it sort of comes down to what we were talking about, about trust. When people trust you as an artist, I think they give you the leeway, even if they don't 100% trust it. You know what I mean? Or, or 100% understand, understand where it's going. Where it's going. Yeah. That they yes. go, all right, well, let's see how that works. And with the notion that we can always fix it a little, we fix it in post. Mm-hmm. Um, but the smart executives sort of get you and, and jump on board and go, I love that idea. Let's let's yeah. go mm-hmm. there. The single weirdest experience I think I've ever had working in television was when I started to write for Ben 10. Okay. Sure. We've just gone through 45 
five incarnations, <laughs> most of which I've I've been part of. Mm -hmm. uh, but I did my first outline, which was just a rough beat outline for, for the late Dwayne McDuffie, who was the story there and, and a dear man and a good friend. And Much missed. Lost. Much, Much missed. missed. I mean, uh, just a terrific, talented, incredibly good guy. Uh, and I turned in the beat outline and I waited to get notes so I can go to a full outline. And instead, I get a phone call from Dwayne going, good to go. Start the script. And I said... <laughs> Right. Well, uh, thank you, but um, <laughs> can I get a copy of the outline you sent into the network? <laughs> and and he said, why? I said, well, I need to see what changes you made and what embellishments you made to fill it out so I know how to write the script. And he said, well, we didn't really make many. I said, Dwayne, there's a point in the third act where I said, cool stuff happens here. <laughs> is this what you turned into the network? And he said, well, it's you. We trust you. We trust we the cool, stuff. cool stuff will be there. Right. I said, so what did you, he said, no, no, we sent it in with cool stuff happens here. <laughs> We're expecting you to come up with cool stuff. That is rare. Yeah. Yeah. Man, well, that my, is rare. My favorite executive, Alan Burnett over oh, at Warner yes. I literally would send me other people's notes, you know, DC's notes that that would with a paragraph that would say, "I don't agree with this note. Don't worry about this. <laughs> Ignore this." I and I'm like, note. "I love that note. Like, yeah. I love this man." And yeah. I wrote him back, and I go, "You are my favorite executive <laughs> yeah. because you go, yeah. I am taking the blow on this. Don't worry I about it." I hope you it. sent him cookies. <laughs> <laughs> he was the first one I, executive I worked with because my first animated series was the Batman. The He's amazing. Oh, the guy's love. amazing. And, and then if it doesn't work, he'll go, "Here's a way to make this work." Yes, and you. Go, oh, that's better than my cool stuff happens here, Alan. Thank you. <laughs> my experience in in comics has been, and I'm I'm only speaking for myself, um, that I have when comparing it to animation writing for television, I have found there's more of an opportunity to learn as you go as a television writer. Whereas with comics, I feel like it's a little bit more of a matter of being thrown in at the deep end. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. And as you go along, you know, we'll give you a note here, we'll give you a note there, but there's no real like here's what needs to be done. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I don't I don't think I need to have my hand held necessarily on a job, but it would be nice sometimes to know the guidelines and the rules a little bit. Um, has that been y'all's experience as you've gotten started working on your project or have you had a much closer collaboration creatively with your editor? We had, uh, especially in, you know, we did the, this hundred page thing. So, and we wrote it in chapters and especially in the first couple of chapters, uh, he, he really went out of his way. Jordan White went out of his way to hold our hand, uh, cause it was the first comics we had written. Uh, so, you know, but he was, and it sounds like this is what you got from Alan too. He can suggest Here's a way to make this happen, uh -huh. but it just opens the door mm -hmm. for your own creativity or your own, you know, answers to that solution. Let me ask you a follow-up question. Um, when you started work on the book, was the book scheduled, or was it you guys getting way ahead first and getting getting going on the book? I think it was scheduled, but it was also scheduled so far in advance that we did have. So there was time built time. in for that interaction with the editor. Yes, yeah. exactly. Interesting, exactly. because it's not an ongoing series. Right, we had that luxury. Right, right. Yeah, uh, for our our thrilling adventure one. Uh, it was a, you know, we wrote 136 pages in two weeks and it was the <laughs> opposite experience, but there was also no one. I mean, we have an editor on it, but ultimately it's our book and it's our creation and you we've know, the been writing the show right. for eight years. So that's right. You know, it was, we had to trust each other to have those checks and balances. Mm -hmm. Right. 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 Um, I, I had, I think a number of scripts 
to look at to give me an idea of format and length and, and whatnot. And I, oh, having yeah. read comics for a number of years, I knew the characters' voices, I thought, reasonably well. Mm -hmm. But uh, there was an awful lot that I didn't know. And there's a lot I still don't know, obviously. <laughs> but but a lot of my, I think my learning curve has been along the way, issue to issue. Am and I'm just right. stuff that you sort of pick up as you go along, as opposed to someone pointing it out to you. Mm -hmm. Well, I always mm -hmm. wonder, and, and you guys can speak to this, uh, Len and Adam, having, working on a monthly book... Uh, or, you know, a regular book, I can imagine pacing must be an issue. Like, I think of it in television terms, but it's not even quite that either. It didn't used to be quite the same issue. Now that, now that books seem to be designed to be yeah. in six-issue stories so you can collect them all, right. because the bulk of the income comes from those collectives, the trade paperbacks, right. which sell ad infinitum ad nauseum. Right. Although I, I'm always happy to get the checks. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, I never get nauseous. <laughs> no, no, nor I. And but, I will and, say, too, just to throw this in, as a reader, I love it. Like I, I, and I've, I think I talked about this last time, but I stopped going to the comic book store every week. I just get the collection. Ah. And I know, I know I'm part of the problem, You are. but I love it. <laughs> I'll also wait till Breaking Bad is over and watch them all. <laughs> you will not. You will not. I waited not. for the first couple seasons. Oh. You're not going to watch the last eight? Oh no, I'll watch the last eight. Oh, right. I'm not a moron. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on Twitter. I need uh, to watch the last yeah. eight. <laughs> What's Breaking me Bad? at Ben Blacker. Oh, oh I'm just um, kidding. Just anyway. Kidding. But, but in the old days, it, it it was different. You didn't have to worry about the pacing quite right. that way. Uh, I would often set up things. I had no clue how I was going to pay off. <laughs> I love knowing that three months or four months on the line when I'm sitting there going, what, what the hell am I going to do this month? Oh, wait, I can solve that problem. Uh, and I would do that. I, yeah. I would have, you know, the very first issue I did of Spider-Man, he supposedly, I thought, got rid of the clone's body. And, and <laughs> turns and, out, know, his spider sense guess what? Yeah, I know. His spider sense went off and he felt there was someone around but didn't see anything. So he swallowed in his life. And a couple of months later, Somebody produced photos. They sent J. Jonah Jameson photos of him doing that. Awesome. And I had no idea who it's. <laughs> Six months after that, I figured it out, and I, nice. that was my next issue. But but That's I would right. do that sort of thing all the time, just to keep myself forcing myself to make sure I had something to play with. God forbid I had nothing to yeah. play with. Right. Well, that's one of the best pieces of just general writing advice I've ever gotten was to always write yourself into a corner. Yes. Yeah. Right. Because the best stuff comes when you have to write yourself out of it. Uh, yeah. And, you know, succeed or fail. <laughs> it's, I, I learned about pacing the hardest way possible, which was that I would sign up to do a six-issue story arc or whatever and then go so slow with the first four <laughs> issues that everything had to be jammed oh. into the last two. Or, God forbid, you plan for a six-issue miniseries and then halfway through it, you get a note from above saying, by the way, this is now four issues. Oh. But that doesn't sound... I mean, like, I see a lot of miniseries that are like that. Like, yeah. I would say uh, the first six issues... Of Justice League of the New 52, yeah. like the first four are really damn slow, and it's just a parade of characters, and then it's like, oh, bad guy. <laughs> Two issues to clean it all up, and you're just like, wait a minute. But I wonder, does that pacing work for the graphic novel? I mean, for the collection? You know, it no. 
Not in that case, but but I think there's some that do. Should be paced properly throughout the length of the story, where possible. I don't think you know if it sucks for the first three issues and it's great (laughs) for the last three issues. When you collect them, you're going to read the graphic novel and go, "Well, that paces out much better now." It still sucks for the first three. But but that's in his script, you know. When someone goes, "Geez, I I stopped reading. Your first thirty pages sucked." He goes, "No, it really gets good at forty-five. Like it really takes off." That's where I really put every. Thing. Have any of you guys ever gotten submissions? I mean, when I was an editor, I would get them all the time. And you get the person who doesn't have a clue and has written these 700 page whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, if you just go past the first 500 pages, it's going to kick you <laughs> That's what I'm saying. I, I, I was, got, I was that guy. Five pages. That was you? Yes. I think I still think that's a big problem of mine in my writing is that I still think I tend to front load stories with a lot of character stuff and a lot mm-hmm. of backstory, and then I'm well. That's I'm, the fun I, part too, isn't it? Like it, it I, mean, is. I feel like I do that too. It is, but, but it's, it's not as effective. That, no. it's not, not the, not the effect mean, that you want. Yeah. So it's been a, a hard lesson learned, and I'm still learning it. And in the visual medium, yes, if right. You're tell these things, and you want to front load the character. That's great, but there needs to be motion in the picture. Absolutely, mm-hmm. you need to be doing something, and I. It's one of the very first things I learned. I mean, I, I did an issue of the Hulk at one point where I knew I had a character scene coming up. It was just going to be character. Peter, uh, Peter Parker, Bruce Banner had taken an apartment someplace and was trying to live a normal life. That lasted three issues. Sure. And uh, three whole issues. That's a long wow. time. For, that's a long lease. One, one of his neighbors was a, was a heavy set gentleman named Kropotkin the Great, who was a professional, barely getting by magician. It was just a fun <laughs> character to play with. I came up with, and. The entire page, or the sequence of the two of them talking, starts where Banner's trying to make breakfast. He's busy got cooking bacon and eggs, and Kropotkin comes in, and they, you know, he's cooking during that, and then gets distracted by the conversation, and finally sees Kropotkin out the door and starts to go, oh, crap. And, of course, there's smoke now filling the apartment. He's burned the bacon and eggs because he forgot about it. But it's just stuff to keep busy yep. while they're right. talking, yep. so they're not just headshots. Yeah, yeah right. we use a lot of that in animation as mm-hmm. well, because yes. even though even if you have to have a, a characters having a dialogue, something else needs to be happening during the yes. thing. They need to be doing something interesting, or they're hanging from their their toes on the ceiling. Mm-hmm. Right? What are they doing during this conversation that you're trying to shoehorn this? No, this is important, but they are also chasing each other through the skies right. while right. it's happening. What'll so, happen to me now when I'm I'm plotting out an issue is I'll catch myself going back to the old habit of putting too much stuff up front of characters walking uh-huh. around chatting with each other and having a nice time over a latte and then I'll always think to myself go back to Stan yes because exactly. with Stan it was action character stuff action hmm. well that that was really more Jack than Stan I suppose yeah you're right <laughs> but, but the, that model is is a good model I, I've always find myself going like what's funny geography for this scene like where where can we do this that's different hmm. what's what's interesting what's an interesting action mm-hmm. that these people would be doing in the middle of this so it's not just like chasing after the villain like what's an interesting way to right. do that mm-hmm. or or how we did that all the time on Jackie Chan Adventures <laughs> yeah it was sure. you had to make a list every season of where were interesting places and what were interesting props that's awesome mm-hmm. to do right. all this stuff yeah i always i'm always like okay what's interesting what are they doing are they uh, you know fiddling with ca- playing cards or you know twiddling a knife or what's kind of cool to be doing in the middle of this really boring mm-hmm. one of the things yeah. i was lucky with when i was writing spider-man was a i had ross andrew who was an amazing artist and b it's at new york city Right. And I made right. New York City right. one of the characters right. in that strip. Uh, whenever I needed some place 
interesting for something. Yeah. It was New York City. Yeah. There's, right. another, Never there's a fight on, at the Rockefeller Center ice rink in one issue. <laughs> there's a fight in the middle of all the billboards, the neon billboards in Times Square and right. another. There's, there's my favorite, a, an aerial battle inside Radio City Musical, right. which is that big, <laughs> in another issue. I mean, you could just use the there, city. There's a reason there aren't many comics that are set in Yuma. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and God bless all of our Yuma <laughs> listeners. But it's, it's you know, it, there's not a lot of variety. I'm going to write that comic. Uh-oh. Have any of you ever taken the 310 <laughs> to Yuma? I mean, forget it. The, the Inhumans? The Inhumans. The Inhumans. The Inhumans. There it is. Pitch that. Shame on you. Shame. I'm, I'm just ashamed to know you. I think that about wraps us up here. <laughs> Forever. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. And mastered by Anna Rubinova. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcast.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook. Beow, <coughs> beow,